Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Building the Empire State, Political Economy in the Early Republic. The author is Brian Phillips Murphy. I hope that you really enjoy this interview that I did with him today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm talking with the author of Building the Empire Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Building the Empire State, Political Economy in the Early Republic. The author is Brian Phillips Murphy. I hope that you really enjoy this interview that I did with him today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm talking with the author of Building the Empire State, Political Economy in the Early Republic. The author is Brian Murphy. Brian, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm doing great. Enjoyed the book a lot. Um, You are a a, a CUNY colleague of mine. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're at now, where you've been in the past. Uh, Who are you? I am a history professor at Baruch College uh, in Manhattan, and I work on early American uh, political economy. So I I went to graduate school at the University of Virginia. I worked with Peter Onuf, and uh, before that I had been a political reporter, and for a time I was also a financial reporter. I worked at George Magazine. I covered Al Gore's campaign in 2000. I covered the stock market in the late 90s uh, at Money Magazine, and then left that all um, to go to grad school, and was very lucky to end up working uh, in the New York City area at CUNY. Um, And since then, I've um, gotten a little bit back into politics, uh, political reporting again, um, covering some Christie-related scandals in New Jersey, um, but mainly, uh, I'm tr- <laughs> I try to have it all work around a sort of rotate around an axis of, of being interested in politics and infrastructure and how um, how money and, and politics work together. Yeah, and I'd very much like to go to, back to that that you know, so your some of your current work mm-hmm. uh, toward the the conclusion of our conversation. But but let's let's go back in time a little bit and and. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was this prologue note on banking terms. Hmm. For someone who doesn't know a lot about banking, uh, whether it is today or in the past, this is very helpful. So without recounting each detail, uh, why did you begin the book in this way? I wanted to, you know, one of the things that I keep running into, um, even as a grad student, the first, the first piece I ever wrote about this, uh, the whole project was about how Aaron Burr, used Aaron Burr in, in, in the late 1790s, uh, teamed up with Alexander Hamilton because New York City kept having these yellow fever epidemics and they needed some kind of, they wanted some kind of solution for it. Right? If New York City is going to become a great mercantile capital, you can't have you know, everybody need to leave town um, in the middle of the summer. And they get together and, and charter a water company, and Aaron Burr turns it into a bank by exploiting the language in the charter. And I wrote this piece for a, a seminar, and the first thing I noticed was that 
nobody, I came in with a, a decent knowledge of finance, but most people don't really, you know, aside from, from you know, depositing your paycheck and using an ATM, um, most people don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about what a bank actually does and what, what a bank's function is uh, in a political system. Uh, so I, I decided it would be, I kind of decided really early on, then and there, that whenever I wrote this project up, it would need to have some kind of little little glossary, almost like a cast of characters, but for, for the terms that you have to use to have a book be acceptable to people who study economic history, um, but without with being able to reach an audience way beyond uh, the group who reads economic history, because most of us don't just don't think about banks in that way or talk about banks in that way. Now, now you've written uh, a book about finance in mm-hmm. some ways, but not just about finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book is about the really the formation of the institutions of government and commerce, um, but it is focused on the state of New York. Mm-hmm. Why is New York so critical to understand, to understand this larger history of the development of the country? Because, that's a good question, right? And I think the answer is that New York City, I'm looking at New York City at a point, and New York State at a point when it's in transition, right? When it's still, at the beginning of this book, it's a, a suffering and kind of anemic trading metropole that the British have just pulled out of um, after the occupation at the end of the American Revolution. Um, and within a very short order, um, New York City transforms itself into a, a trading and economic center and a banking center and a transportation center by having these, by building a political economy where you have, um, you have finance, financial and transportation infrastructure projects working uh, kind of hand in hand. And I think in a lot of ways, New York City provided a model for other states and for what other states were looking to do and, and kind of helped define what the legislative ambitions of other states um, should be at this, in the interbellum uh, period. And I think, you know, also in a lot of ways, in many ways after that. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's one of these deals where the you know, there's, some, there's always a risk in picking a case study, but I think in this case, the case study um, is pretty portable because there are a lot of state legislators and there are a lot of bankers and there are a lot of engineers who are, who are looking at New York and trying to mirror what New York is doing at this point. And the city really, the city and state both really are so transformed. I mean, it's just the, the place that I'm writing about in chapter one and the place that I'm writing about at the end of that book um, you know, even to me, after spending years looking at this, um, they're they're just vastly different, and uh, you know, you kind of feel like you can get your your head around what New York is through, you know, through like the 1820s, but then it just explodes, and it's it's a big place that it's hard to catalog, <laughs> and there's so mm-hmm. much going on, um, and I think that's I was really interested in how that transition and transformation happens. So what becomes very apparent in reading this book um, is that many of the relationships we take for granted today were, were truly contested in this period you write about. So you know, ideas as conventional as the private corporation mm-hmm. or the public highway were really up for grabs, you know, even, even the idea of the political party. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So would you describe it maybe a little bit more detail, the world that you researched? What, what parts of it would have looked very, very different and, and would be surprising so that when we use the term today, a private corporation, mm-hmm. it didn't even mean the same thing then. Public highway system it wasn't even in operation. So maybe you could just take us back there a moment and, and, and describe briefly what, what it would have looked like. So the only way you get a, a charter create a corporation in the early American Republic is to go to, instead of, you know, today, if you and I wanted to, after this podcast, um, go and start a company, all we would have to do is, you know, round up enough people to make a board of directors and then file a form with the clerk um, in the county of New York, right? In the state of New York and pay a small fee. That's it. And we'd be a corporation. We'd have the privileges that come with that of being a, a fictional person who can sue and be sued, you know, we could, we could, you know, we could go start a super PAC if we wanted to. Um, you just can't do that in early America. If you want to get access to those privileges, and I think that's the thing, is that they recognize at that point, they understand much better than I think, um, than I think we do today. I think we, we kind of know it deep down, but I don't know that we always make the connection all that quickly. They understand that Money is power. And that if you have sort of a big pile of money um, that's been either that it's owned by a person or controlled by a person or if it's controlled by an institution, it kind of has its own center of gravity. Um, and it bends things to its will in a certain way. Um, and so the, the idea that you would just give out privileges, right, corporate privileges that would allow people to engage in capital formation, right? Just the, the gathering of money. Um, it's a really contested thing. And it's not at all clear when the country's founded that the United States is even going to be willing to allow that kind of institution to go on because it was so associated with, with British rule, right? The sort of the, the most famous corporation probably in the American colonies is the East India Company, right? Like this is not a popular, <laughs> not a popular mm-hmm. outfit by any standard. So the world that, that is at the beginning of the book, right, is one where people have an idea that they'd like to start banks because they're interested in shaping their, first of all, they're interested in bringing in money to the city of New York, but because they're interested in getting into politics, but they don't know how to win an election if they have to be on a ballot. And so the other way in, the other route into politics is to get involved in banking. And if you want to do that, then you probably want to try to get a corporate charter. But the only way to do that is to ask the state legislature for one. So it, it immediately puts this burden on you to engage in, um, you have to start lobbying. You have to start getting involved in political activities. And of course, once the state opens its doors up to allowing corporations to get adopted and be, to creating corporate charters, well, then, right, this legislature sort of said, well, you know, we're willing to hear proposals around this and we're willing to be lobbied on this particular issue. And that's when you start to see that the two, those two worlds work very much hand in hand. And the interesting thing about it is, you know, I think we look back on the period, right? We think that corporations are sort of a natural part of the political environment and the economy today. And if you look back, you find that they weren't. And we also, I think, 
look back on the founding period as one where, you know, perhaps uh, the ethics, the, the concerns about ethics and the concerns about you know, keeping some ideological purity and doing motives, uh, you know, having acting out of uh, publicly spirited motives, um, is sort of either the, the the norm or the norm that people aspired to, and I'm not finding that at all. You know, there people are pretty interested in finding ways to tie their material well-being and to you know, to create material and incentives in politics and to get people to sort of buy into the American state project um, by getting them to buy into the economic institutional world that's being created in the 1780s and 1790s. And let's let's talk about specifically one of those, and it's the one that you alluded to at the start of our conversation, which is which is the the, the case study and chapter you you write about uh, Aaron Burr's early forays into the water business. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most of us know a bit about who Burr became, mm-hmm. um, but who was he before he gained such national no- notoriety? And and so, what was this clever maneuver that he he used to, in many ways, outsmart? The, the, the Federalist elites in, in New York City and, and move his way up the, uh, the ladder of national prominence? So Burr is a former, in the, in the late 1790s, Aaron Burr is a, is a retired army officer who had been a, become a colonel during the American Revolution. Um, he had been involved in New York City in state politics as a member of the state legislature. The legislature. He had been um, a United States senator from New York, and he's a state assemblyman. He's a state assemblyman and a lawyer with a practice in uh, in the city. And he is, in spite of that, um, he's very seriously uh, considering how he can make himself uh, the next president of the United States uh, after John Adams. And one of the, the things that he gets involved in here is, you know, or again, is this blending personal and financial motives with, with civic motives, is this yellow fever problem in the city. And he and Alexander Hamilton, um, who are both, you know, Hamilton at this point is also a, a lawyer and a extremely prominent federalist, um, but someone who's political career is kind of kind of winding down. Um, Burr and Hamilton team up and put this proposal together to create a water company, uh, which is going to need a corporate charter. And so it's a, because it's a, it's a publicly spirited venture, the New York State legislature is willing to do it, right? They hadn't been all that enthusiastic about creating banks in this period. And the problem that, that Burr kind of recognizes is that if you want to do so, again, going back to the sort of known in banking terms, right? If you need credit, right, and we're not talking about sort of consumer banking like, like we would do today where, you know, you have a checking account and your paycheck goes into there and you can write checks against an account and whatnot. Um, kind of looking at if you're running a, a mercantile firm, um, especially one involved in transatlantic trade or that, that has any contact with transatlantic trade, you need access to credit because you don't get paid on a regular basis and you have to settle accounts on schedule all, all kinds of different schedules. And so it's extremely helpful to be able to have a bank float you alone for, for 
short or long term period um, just to carry you through or enable you to expand and whatnot. Um, the only way to really get access to bank credit in the, by the middle of the 1790s uh, is to be tied in with all these that are Hamilton's cronies in New York City, all of whom are Federalists. Right? The Bank of New York is the bank. In fact, even Bank of New York checks from the 1790s just say the bank, right? And they don't even bother saying the Bank of New York because there's only one bank in town. And it's, a, it's, it's an all implied. Um, and Burr kind of realized that if he wants to create a political machine capable of turning the New York State Legislature, which picks the electors in the presidential contest, right? Because they're not the, eventually the state legislature is the is the group of people who get to make that call. If you want to get control of the New York State Legislature, you have to you're going to need to turn New York Republican, and the only way to turn New York Republican um, that bursties is being sort of easy to accomplish and, and quick to do is to set up a Republican bank to be a countervailing force to the Bank of New York, which is run by Federalists. And so he, he uses this chance, right? He, they put this proposal in front of the New York City um, Common Council, and they say, sure, go ahead and ask the legislature for a charter. And Burr says, you know, this is very convenient. I happen to be a state assemblyman already. <laughs> I'll shepherd it through the legislature. And he makes a little amendment uh, to the proposed charter for this water company and inserts a clause saying, you know, by the way, we'll be able to do whatever this, this water company, the Manhattan Company, will be able to do anything that it likes with any excess capital it has so long as that's legal under the federal and state constitutions. And banking isn't illegal under either of those constitutions. And so, you know, fast forward to just a few weeks after the legislature get, uh, approves this charter, John Jay signs it. Um, they have their first board meeting, and these guys you know, these guys start talking about how they're going to use the money that they've raised, all of this capital that they're supposed to be using to build a water supply system, um, but they haven't put to use yet. They're going to take some of that money and use it to open up a bank. And there are federalists who our allies of Hamilton sitting on the board of directors who look around and notice, oh, you know, one of the other things that Aaron Burr did when he was in the legislature, when this went through the legislature, is to increase the number of people on the board of directors. And the original proposal had a, a group that was pretty much split down the middle between Federalists and people who you would kind of identify as Republicans, right, who come from three, three different factions within a kind of still not quite organized Republican coalition. Burr increases the number of board number of seats on the board of directors and fills them with his own people. And so now the Federalists, who would have objected to this and would have might have been able to carry a vote objecting to any banking activities, find that this institution that isn't really a water company anymore also isn't really evenly split anymore because now there's a Republican majority on the board of directors that's comprised of these three different factions in the state of New York among the, the Sort of Republicans who hadn't cooperated together all that well in the past, but now they're within a bank where everybody stands to make money, and those guys are going to find a reason to get along, uh, if only to preserve that institution and defend it from Federalists who are going to charge that, that Burr engaged in a big swindle. 
Um, so I, I love the story because it, it, Burr plays with the idea of what a corporation is and what a, what a bank is and how you can have a, a public benefit company uh, also exist as something that's partisan and also exist as something that's financial, uh, even though it's supposed to be a piece of water infrastructure. Um, and it's this very, I think, yeah, it's a very, in a lot of ways, modern um, appreciation for what kind of power you can wield from within a corporation and how it fits into the political economy of the country that we know today. Yeah, I thought the story was just so interesting. It was just simply about sort of the, the formation of political parties and the 1800 election, mm-hmm. just it, it, it shares so much with that. Now, you're a historian, but you're firmly rooted in the politics of today. Uh, so when you write about and talk about corruption in modern politics, are there bits of this history of the development of American political economy that you draw on in particular? Are there any specific cases that, uh, that, that you say, well, you know, I actually can better understand this uh, case of corruption or malfeasance in, in today's politics, that that's roots are, are in the 200-year uh, history of the country? In some ways, yeah, you know, the, the, I'm working on my next project is about corruption and how, how early Americans understood it. Um, and one of, the, one of the interesting things is that I, I got into this work because as a political reporter covering Jersey, one of the more interesting conversations I ended up having with the, the guy who was my editor, who, who now, is a, um, now is a cooperating witness in the Bridgegate trial uh, this, about this case involving a, a traffic shutdown at the George Washington Bridge um, that was apparently to punish a, a mayor, though I'm not really sure about that. Um, you know, we had this conversation about why it is that in, in New Jersey and in New York, Right. Like the, the Port Authority, this agency that controls the bridges, tunnels, airports in the New York City metropolitan area. You know, why that job and why that board membership is so politically powerful, but one that almost nobody has ever heard of. Like no voter has really ever heard of it. And most reporters don't cover it. Um, and I was, that kind of is why, I, I was interested in why that happened, which kind of, drew me into things like the Manhattan Company and the Erie Canal. And I, I think of them as, it's not almost looking for, in a lot of ways, I'm not looking to draw to see how things have necessarily developed from the starting point, but I'm, I'm thinking about it either in the frame of today or in the frame of the past and looking at how these things have transformed and how the, uh, the dynamic works sort of in a, in a trans-historical way over time, right? And sort of going, going, looking forward, but also looking back. Um, and, I, you know, one of the, like, fascinating things to me is that, you know, the big concern that people have in the 1780s is not how are voters influencing politicians. It's how, you know, the, if you look at early American corruption statutes, they tend to deal with, uh, in some ways they deal with contracting, but... You know, the main worry around elections is that politicians uh, at election time would candidates would buy booze, right? They'd buy like big, you know, uh, big barrel of rum, or you know, serve 
they called it ginger cake, like almost a, a gingerbread. They would serve like drinks and refreshments to voters uh, on election day. And there were a lot of concerns that, you know, that was buying an election, right? That the politicians were uh, exercising undue influence over the voters by giving the voters gifts uh, on election day. There's not really any discussion about uh, voters giving money to campaigns, right? There's not even, a, in some ways, there's not even a vocabulary for that yet. So the, the worlds, in a lot of ways, they're so different um, that they're not, it, you have to dig into what the ideological assumptions are because sort of if you look at what the practices are and what the institutions are, there aren't great, uh, there aren't necessarily great um, analogies that you can draw, right? There, you can, but, but I think they're a little bit, sometimes it's a little bit too much of a stretch. So if you look at what people are, are thinking politics should be about and what, uh, what virtue is and what, what kind of corruption definitely should not be allowed and where people have sort of, and especially in cases where people didn't get the memo and end up soon doing something wrong and getting punished for it, that then sets a standard of behavior going forward. Uh, those are the kind of moments that I'm always looking for, right? Where someone has done something too partisan um, or done something too, um, you know, they've taken they've taken the bribe from the wrong person or they've taken the bribe in the wrong way um, to support the wrong type of project, even though bribery is actually fairly common. Um, not necessarily something that people celebrated, but it's pretty acknowledged that it's a, it's a commonplace part of American politics in, in the early Republic. Um, yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm interested in. Right. And I, I would imagine that the location of Aaron Burr's meeting with Alexander Hamilton uh, probably didn't have, uh, occur too far from where the Bridgegate scandal no, it didn't. Uh, no, it, itself happened. Like probably just in the shadow of the, uh, the, the bridge that was not yet built. Sure. So Brian's book, uh, Building the Empire State Political Economy in the Early Republic, is available from Penn Press. Brian, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me here.
project, even though bribery is actually fairly common. Um, not necessarily something that people celebrated, but it's pretty acknowledged that it's a it's a commonplace part of American politics in, in the early republic. Um, yeah. That's the kind of stuff that I'm I'm interested in. Right, and I, I would imagine that the location of Aaron Burr's meeting with Alexander Hamilton uh, probably didn't hap- uh, occur too far from where the Bridgegate scandal no, it didn't. Uh, no, it, it's itself happened, like- probably just in the shadow of the, uh, the, the bridge that was not yet built. Sure. So Brian's book, uh, Building the Empire State Political Economy in the Early Republic, is available from Penn Press. Brian, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Heath.